Welcome to the Edge of the Law. Conversations on controversial, sometimes little known, sometimes disturbing, cutting edge legal topics. I'm your host, Joel Cohen, and today we'll be discussing an epic acquisition litigation battle, the world's richest man and inside baseball at the highest stakes in the M&A world. Yes, we're talking about Elon Musk and Twitter and you, I think, will love our guest. He's a law professor at Columbia Law School. He also has a PhD in economics from Stanford. And he's not just a smart guy. He is a smart guy who has read the docs, who has read the litigation and spent a lot of time thinking about this. Without further ado, Professor Eric Talley, welcome. And I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Hey, it's great to be here, Joel. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure, Eric. And I can see that we're not joining you today in your Columbia Law School offices. You have indeed reached me in my person cave at home. I am, uh, my, my, my interest and commitment to the Musk case is so great, Joel, that I am willing to, to work through a bout of COVID. And that's what I'm dealing with right now. But the M&A deal must go on, as they say. So I'm wow. keeping tabs on it. Well, as a former M&A lawyer in a past life, I know the dedication to the to the deal. And I must say, you look great. But if you need to take a break at any point, we'll do that. Sounds good. Thanks a lot. Why don't we tee this up? This has really captured national attention. And there's so many reasons why. It's a, a social media platform that millions use. It's America's most famous entrepreneur and the world's richest man. And just a lot of drama involved as well. But before we get into the weeds, what do you think is exceptional about this transaction? Well, maybe it's a little easier to list what's not exceptional about this tra transaction. Uh, the the non-exceptional part is that this is a this is an uninvited buyer who suddenly met with success, worked out a contract, and then almost immediately changed his mind. Uh, beyond that, um, everything is is pretty much imbued with the personality of Elon Musk, and I think we don't go down any of these roads without understanding kind of the unique position that he seems to occupy both kind of the national national landscape, but also kind of in the landscape of sort of corporate finance and corporate management, stewardship and ownership. You know, you, you go back in, in this case, the beginning of February, January 2022, no one had an inkling that Elon Musk might be interested in buying Twitter. I'm not even sure Elon Musk did. And some point in the, uh, in the early spring, late winter 2022, uh, he decided to muse publicly over Twitter that he was interested in buying the company. And uh, and they weren't looking for a buyer. They weren't up for sale. And uh, and then he, they suddenly were sort of confronted with this person. And it wasn't just some rando guy. It was the richest guy in the world who said, I think I might want to just own the company. And, and usually when that happens, the person is bluffing. They, they're, they're pretending they want to own the company. What they really want to do is be on the board of the company and influence things that are going on. So they don't have to pay as much to actually buy the company. With Musk, it was always kind of unclear because, you know, it's, it wasn't clear whether that threat was empty or not. But if you'll recall in, in early March, uh, and, and actually going into April, uh, Musk was, posed or poised to become a member of the board of Twitter. That At this point, he had announced he had taken a significant ownership in the company. Uh, but for many, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts, did you think that was as far as it was going to go? I think people thought at least for um, the, the moment that was as far as things were going to go. Uh, you know, anytime you have a, an activist, and in fact, Mr. Musk would be deemed to be an activist by the time he was offered a seat on the board, there's always a chance that uh, they're going to try to uh, uh, actually finish a uh, takeover of the company. But usually once you've got them on the board, you've made them sign a standstill agreement that says they're not going to try to take over the company for three years and it buys you some breathing room. And uh, they, you know, in this case, they got up to, you know, maybe the five yard line. He was about to go on the board, was probably confronted with some of this standstill agreement language and then backed out, uh, basically having convinced himself and maybe having been convinced by some of those around him that maybe he should just buy the company. He's, he's, he is someone who could actually make good 
on a threat to do so. So in a in a pretty dramatic 180 that happened at the very end of March and early April, he turned himself from someone who was about to join the board to someone who was tweeting things like love me tender, which was a very, very veiled uh, threat to make a so-called tender offer directly to the shareholders of Twitter to buy their shares. Maybe this is a good time to kind of lay out the basic steps again for for the subset of the audience who might have not have been following it. This kicked off back in early 2022? Yeah, it was in the first quarter of 2022. It's sort of a slow roil. And then things really got um, heated end of March um, and early April. And that's when the poison pill had been put up, when there were negotiations about um, him being on the board, when he had disclosed that he had already bought about 9% of Twitter. And, and once you cross the 5% threshold, you have to make that disclosure. So he was outed as a person who potentially uh, was going to try to buy up a bunch of shares of the company on a hostile basis. And this is, um, you know, if, if you go back in kind of the annals of history in uh, in public company governance, this is not that unusual. This is a very 1980s kind of moment, right? Where there's, there's someone who is, you know, you know, Possibly thinking about a takeover, the kind of Carl Icahn sort of comes to mind. Uh, you're trying to take take over a company on a hostile basis. The board's trying to figure out what to do, and um, they're going to probably try to resist that person for one of two reasons, if not both. One. They kind of know their jobs are done if this person takes over the company. So they might have a, a reason to sort of try to stay in, in power somewhat, somewhat less selfishly, though. Uh, if this, this outsider is going to buy the company and the board's going to lose their jobs, they at the very least want to be able to, to bargain for a really good price, um, for that acquisition. So a lot of times, uh, boards will implement these, um, uh, you know, these defensive measures and the poison pill was the main one here uh, to essentially signal to the person that's bidding, Elon Musk in this case, that you're just going to have to stop dead in your tracks unless you go through us. You're going to have to bargain with us because if you don't bargain with us and you go straight to the shareholders, you're going to be forced to eat this poison pill and it's not going to be pleasant. I don't want to refer to a poison pill as a as a, a, a roadblock because it, you know, it can be it can be prohibitive, but you're describing it serving a dual role. One, it could stop the deal dead in its tracks, or it might just be a way to to bump up the purchase price. Yeah, and and you know the best way to defend a poison pill is to say, look, we're using it for bargaining leverage to decide when and if we want to sell the company. And if we choose to do so, to do so on terms that are maximally beneficial to the shareholders who are essentially going to be shown the door because of this deal. So, so that's how most people will defend the, the poison pill. And, you know, it effectively, there's, there's different versions of these things, but they, they effectively have the flavor of in, in a kind of an odd, ironic analogy to the, the, the storied, um, uh, scorched earth defense uh, made so popular by Russia, right? That that the the poison pill doesn't directly keep you from buying stock, but it 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 causes uh, what you get once you successfully buy the stock to be almost worthless. So in some cases, it's because you trigger an obligation to, for the company to just start hemorrhaging money to everyone else but the person that has bought up the you know some you know, minimal stake, 20%, for, for instance, of the company. In some cases, and this one was, was this latter case, all the other shareholders, uh, except for the person that's crossed this threshold, uh, suddenly get to turn their one share into five or six shares apiece. And so suddenly, you know, you get up to 20%, everyone else converts themselves, uh, in a one to five or one to six conversion, and it pushes you all the back, all the way back down to 4% again, and you have to start all over again, at which point they could reload the poison pill, and this game can go on and on and on until the acquirer finally gives up and sits down and bargains with the company. That's interesting. I, I've actually, we asked a prior guest, um, and, and maybe you have more data. Do you know of a poison pill ever being fired multiple times in a hostile deal? No, only once. I, I think the only one that I'm aware of was about 15 years ago. It was a really, really low threshold. It was a 5% threshold in a case called Selectica versus Versada. And there the, the acquirer basically said, look, we think that the 5% poison pill isn't enforceable. So we're going to deliberately breach it. 
and uh, and uh, then try to litigate in court. And in that case, they did. They busted through the top. The board then re-implemented it again after it diluted them down. That's when they sued. They didn't try to bust through it again because at that point they uh, they had standing to sue. They didn't want to have both standing and uh, you know potentially really take it in the kneecaps if they lost, which they did. Fascinating. So, you know, why don't we go a minute or two? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I, I guess it's a few days before the poison pill was enacted. This You mentioned Elon was offered the board seat and he got cold feet. And some people speculated that it had to do with what you described as a standstill agreement. These were obligations put on him as a board member uh, what were some of those obligations? So uh, when you sign up as a board member, particularly if you have come onto the board as an activist, these companies aren't stupid, right? Even Twitter, which has been described as a dumpster fire, was was well advised on this, that you need to make sure that there's an understanding that if you're bringing this person inside the uh, war council tent, that they're not basically using all the strategies that you're talking about to to you know to lead a palace coup. So so typically, what will happen when someone comes onto a board um, from an activist position is that they're going to be required to sign a relatively um, demanding contract that says not only can you not make moves to take over this company, you can't work with other people who are thinking of taking over this company, you cannot supply any other people with information, you cannot act in a way that's inconsistent consistent with the ongoing vitality of this company as opposed to its takeover by someone else. So uh, and, 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 and that's, you know, a, a usually something that is thought to be a, a relatively you know, strict and binding contract. It does tie your hands. And, uh, you know, I think most people sort of feel like Mr. Musk, um, you know, might have at least at that point in time decided he wanted to make such foundational and wholesale changes to the company that he wouldn't have the votes to do it as a single board member, and therefore he didn't want to tie his hands, and he was going to actually take a take a move to take over the company as a whole uh, and try, if he could, to defeat that poison pill. I could see how, uh, for someone like him who's who's running a number of companies with uh, near total control, the idea that yeah, we're going to give you more power, we're going to give you a say. But that means you can't, you can never, you can't increase your ownership. You can't say bad things about the company. Uh, we're going to add these restrictions on you and your life. Yeah, that's that's uh, typically the trade-off there. And and realize for most people, that's totally worth it, right? Because to to engineer an actual takeover of the company means you got to buy up. The company, you got to buy out all the stockholders, which means you're going to either have to, you know, rifle through your couch cushions yourselves to find that money, or you're going to have to borrow it or find enough, enough friends to do it. The, the calculus changes a little bit if you're the richest man in the world who has a bunch of friends who, um, on the basis of a, a you know, a, a text that says ride or die, I'll just give you a bunch of money. So, uh, so I think Mr. Musk in his, in his view, uh, wasn't that far away from being able to just, you know, to, 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 to do the entire thing, hook, line, and sinker, so long as he could convince the board to remove that poison pill. Because if he couldn't do that, all the money in the world wouldn't keep that poison pill from just getting reloaded, reloaded, reloaded. And the shareholders uh, would never, you know, get the chance to even vote on a uh, transaction where the board would be sell you know, would be recommending a sale to him. Well, let's talk about how he overcame it. And I think the short answer is, uh, 40 some billion dollars or, or a significant premium over the, the market price. Uh, what happened back in April? Well, so when uh, Mr. Musk finally came forward with an offer, everyone knew he was going to do it by then because he just backed off of the board. He was, um, you know, only in a thinly veiled way tweeting about this, which is a little bit problematic um, from a from a securities law perspective. Uh, and at some point, he comes out with an offer. Now, the offer, you know, one of the things that I think some people uh, know quite well about Elon Musk is that he's he's got this kind of odd infatuation with various types of um, uh, magic numbers, including the 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 420 meme, the, the the 20th of April sort of National Marijuana Day meme. And uh, and so he made a bid of 5420 uh, to uh, to uh, buy the company. Uh, that was not a 
terrible offer. It did offer a, a relatively good premium over where Twitter had been trading before he got interested in the in the company. Now, usually what happens when a board has a poison pill and they get one of those offers is they will treat it as a first offer. They will say, okay, thank you, Mr. Musk, for that first offer. In his offer, for a variety of reasons, possibly because he was super interested in making sure that 420 stayed in his offer, uh, he um, he basically said, "This is my last and final offer. I'm gonna. I I, I am not gonna go any higher. You cannot get me to go any higher. Um, I will make it on very very seller friendly terms, so that it's gonna be um, not. Um, you know, th there aren't gonna be a lot of ways that this deal can go sideways because that's one of the things that people care about if they're selling a company and then suddenly, oh gee, the the, the deal is off after your two or three months into the process. So he, you know." In a, in a fairly public way, both through a letter and through tweets, say this is a great offer. I've done it in a way that has a um, not only a good price, but doesn't give me a lot of escape hatches. I'm going to waive the type of you know, pre-bid investigation that a lot of people do called the due diligence process. And I'm just going to give you this offer, you know, kind of on, on, on the basis of uh, what I already think I know about the company. Well, I want to talk about the, the favorable terms because this is going to be so relevant in our conversation, particularly his decision on the diligence process. Uh, what, what exactly was what he waived? He, he decided he was willing to forego any diligence or he was willing to accept a very restricted diligence? Yeah, so there are essentially two points of time in, in, in one of these deals in which uh, you have the opportunity to do um, investigation of the company, to kick the tires, to look under the hood, to you know, kind of get a sense of what is it that I'm buying. One is before the bid takes place, right? That that there's often a process in a so-called friendly or negotiated deal in which the parties are actually going back and forth for quite some time ahead of the transaction, trying to satisfy the buyer as to some of the biggest issues that are associated with the deal. Now, they may not make it to the finish line, right? It's not a perfect world. You don't necessarily learn everything. But a lot of that, you know, if you do it before you try to price the deal, before you try to specify what the deal is going to look like, can be very helpful to the buyer. It's also, you know, some, it's also a little time consuming and a little bit costly. So he was basically saying, look, I'm not going to drag you through any of that process. I am not going to put you at all in any, any position where um, you're having to open up the kimono to, you know, people that I'm sending over. You can just negotiate this right now. You mentioned the, this time period between signing and closing. Again, M&A lawyers don't need an explanation, but for those who are watching who don't, these are two major steps and they don't necessarily occur simultaneously. Maybe you can walk through like a quick overview. What's, what is signing? Why is signing separate from closing? And, and what happens between? Yeah, so in some M&A deals, signing and closing happens on the same day, and you can accomplish them simultaneously. Um, and those are relatively clean deals, but they typically don't involve companies that are publicly traded companies that potentially have regulatory burdens associated with them. So in a case that involves a public company, already uh, an acquisition uh, is going to require a vote of the selling company shareholders. In order to have that vote, you've got to notice the shareholders. You have to schedule a special shareholder meetings. You may have millions of shareholders scattered all over the place. You have to send them proxy materials so that they can digest what the nature of this transaction is. And then you have to convene the meeting and vote. And that's just with your shareholders. For public companies, they're also relatively large, and therefore it may be that antitrust authorities are going to really care about it. It may be that foreign direct investment authorities, right, sort of national security concerns uh, may come into play because this is, you know, effectively the marketplace of exchange. Uh, it could be that uh, tax authorities uh, or other authorities are going to come into play that need to sign off on this deal after you've actually signed the contracts but before the, the, the payment and the transfer of ownership is actually made. The period between signing and closing, as you mentioned, could be instant. It could be as far out as a number of months. Um, and during that period, what's going on at the company level and with the acquirer? 
Great. So during that period of time, there, you know, the, the company is trying to continue doing business, obviously. And not only do they want to, because, you know, maybe this thing falls apart, though this deal, you know, was locked up pretty, pretty tightly. Uh, but also they're going to be under an obligation. The buyer who's coming in doesn't want to get to a position where, uh, where, you know, the seller has realized, Hey, We've now sold the company, so let's just uh, let's just take up golf and and forget about running this company in a reasonable way. So there were obligations that Twitter was under to keep running the company, and so best they could, they were going to continue running the company as it was just a going concern, waiting for this day of closing to take place. Now, on top of that, there were things that were actually um, you know envisioned to be a little bit more again these narrow out, um, alleys of additional. Uh, additional investigatory rights that uh, Mr. Musk had. The main one is the right to um, to ask for additional information from Twitter um, in a manner that was supposed to be uh, related to consummating the transaction. Those were the terms that were used in the contract itself. And this would involve things like information about bots and information about uh, what the account numbers look like and inf information about monetizability of your account members and so forth. And, uh, and, and that provision was, you know, is one of a small number of covenants that, that Twitter had towards Mr. Musk, in addition to just run this company in its ordinary course. Uh, but it also gave Twitter a fair amount of discretion to, uh, to say, look, you're asking for something that might imperil the, the, uh, privacy of the, of, of our user base. You're asking for something that might be sketchy on a legal grounds for us to give you until you own the company. So we, we're, you know, we're going to refuse on that. And so the informational rights that Mr. Musk had, they also had limits to them, uh, that were essentially based on Twitter's determination that it, it couldn't give them, uh, or couldn't give up, you know, certain types of information because of some of these other, other problems. Uh, when Mr. Musk shortly after uh, signing up this deal got, um, got, uh, you know, kind of um, convinced that he didn't want to go through the deal anymore, those information rights were the key ones that he was effectively using. Uh, it's not the only one, right? The, the sort of running the business and seeking his input in running the business were another constellation of some of those those avenues. But there really weren't that many other places where Mr. Musk had rights to do a whole bunch of drilling into this company to find out more information. And once you're in a position where you know, you actually think you might want to run away from the transaction. You'd like to look for any escape hatch that you can find. And there just weren't too many escape hatch handles that he could grab onto. This was one, but it was, you know, it was always going to be a little bit of, of limited utility. You mentioned it. There's no spoilers here. Elon uh, attempted to back out. S Twitter sued. And then since then, uh, it looks like uh, the deal is back on. However, you know, why don't we, before we get there, I, I, a couple of more basic M and A uh, concepts I want to touch on, <laughs> since I have the man, a man who teaches the topic. Uh, this is a public company. How do you, how do you take it private? Uh, I'm, I'm sure this could be a whole two-hour lecture, but maybe an overview. You buy a certain amount, and then you can force it private. How does it work? Yeah, so um, there are a couple different ways you can do it. The, an old school way is just to try to buy fifty one percent of the company, and then you, you pretty much have the majority of the shares. You can you know vote people onto the board and so forth. Uh, because of poison pills, no one actually gets up to fifty one percent anymore. They're going to be stopped dead in their tracks. As was Elon Musk, so he's sitting there at about nine point nine percent. So so the the typical way that you'll go about doing doing it is using one of several different types of statutory schemes uh, in which uh, effectively it'll come down to a shareholder vote. And if the shareholders vote to accept the deal, not only do the shareholders who have voted to accept the deal, but even people who have voted no are effectively forced to give up their shares, in this case, in exchange for $54.20 per share. Now, sometimes you can set the structures up so that it involves a bunch of specialty companies that have been set up just for the purpose of, um, of, 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 of entering into this acquisition. And this acquisition had the flavor of, um, of what M&A people call a, a reverse 
triangular merger, which we don't even have to get into the details, but it did then sort of require setting up a couple of other shell companies uh, so that when the smoke cleared from the transaction, Twitter actually still existed as a company. It was the thing that survived, but it was owned indirectly by Mr. Musk rather than by Twitter shareholders. So when they vote and the deal closes, they are essentially surrendering their shares. Their shares are, are forcibly exchanged for a right to receive $54.20 uh, cash each. And um, Twitter then issues common shares to Mr. Mr. Musk as all, par, all one foul swoop of what goes on. And that's how they envisioned it here as well. So you don't have to buy up the entire company. In this case, it was only 9.9%. But you did have to convince at least another 40.2% of the, of the shareholders to vote in favor of the transaction. And, you know, when, when this deal got signed up, you know, given where Twitter's stock had been tr trading, I think a lot of people thought, yeah, that's a pretty good premium. But, you know, the board decided they were going to take that offer from Mr. Musk. It was his offer and they were going to negotiate with him. And they came out at the end of that weekend with exactly the same price, right? They didn't get any price concessions from him. It stayed exactly that same price. And so, um, you know, the, the, you know, early on in this process, people were thinking, oh, this, the board is going to get sued by Twitter shareholders because they caved in bargaining. They didn't bargain him up to 5620 or something like that. Um, and then, you know, shortly after they signed up the deal, not only, uh, uh, you know, not only did Mr. Mustard get cold feet, but the entire tech sector started to, to, to retrench. And it turned out that not only was 54.20 an okay price for Twitter, every day that passed, it was a better and better and better price for Twitter. Because the whole sector was, was hemorrhaging, uh, share, uh, share value. Yeah, the entire like that. Th this was essentially a um, a deflating football, and having locked in a price that was not bad, maybe you know maybe they could have weaselled their way to a little bit more. Within days, it looked like a good price, and so so you know uh, weirdly, Twitter's board emerged looking like kind of the the you know Forrest Gump like geniuses of having locked in this price that that now but by, by today's standards you know if, if Elon Musk weren't in the picture I think most people think Twitter would be trading between 20 and 25 dollars a share so by today's standards that was a fantastic price and you know the rest of the market's been tanking as well in fact you know you look at these market these days of carnage in the stock market often Twitter's like the one company that's like not really not really doing much because it's more locked in around this 5420 just under it. Well, let's talk about uh, the ways in a merger between signing and closing that would allow either Elon to walk away from Twitter or in general provisions that didn't make it into the merger agreement um, that could have allowed him to walk away. You mentioned a, cup, a couple up top, but what are the what are the main valves here, the main power uh, tools? So the main power tools to walk away are uh, effectively one of two types. Uh, one of them can be uh, that there is something that happens that was always a little bit of a wild card that you know turns out to be such surprise bad news for one side or the other that it essentially allows that side the ability to say, oh man, this is a crazy piece of news. This is so significant that it has a, and now I'm gonna use a term of art, material at, materially adverse effect on my, um, you know, on my payoff, on what I get out of this contract. And so, uh, so this contract actually did allow for certain types of material adverse effects to give one side or the other, or in some cases both, the ability to walk away from the contract. But there's a very, very long provision uh, that defines what a material adverse effect is. And it basically has a, it, it's almost like a piece of Swiss cheese. It has like, it specifies, you know, a, a very general set of things that might be a material, adver material adverse effect, which basically have to do with sudden bad news about Twitter's, you know, business, uh, you know, operational, you know, health and so forth. But then it had a laundry list of exceptions, things that you could not point to, notwithstanding the fact that the business and operational condition and financial condition had, had deteriorated. You couldn't cite to certain types of deterioration if they were the cause of this laundry list of things, these carve outs. One of them was general market conditions. 
couldn't cite to it. It was a carve out. So just because the whole market was tanking and Twitter, therefore, was probably tanking, didn't mean that, in this case, the buyer could walk away. You couldn't walk away in the case of war, right? There was that there, there was actually a provision that said, um, you know, uh, regional conflict or war is not a reason to be able to walk away. And and as we soon found out, you know, one of the reasons that, that Mr. Musk played with was trying to argue that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was what gave him the ability to walk away. This provision was so specific, in fact, that it even excluded special things that might have to do with the fact that the personality of Elon Musk was involved in this transaction. Wow. And I, I will, I'll tell you, Joel, I, I don't know that I've ever seen uh, a material adverse effect definition that actually names a person as one of the carve outs. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen it. I certainly have never been named as one of the carve outs in an MAE provision. I suspect you have never been either. Should I be so lucky? Yeah, he's just a little different, I guess. The last time I was on speaking with someone about MAEs, material adverse effects, was relating to how COVID had shifted the way some of these were being drafted. I'm sure in this, there was a, a carve out for the pandemic or, or other pandemics coming in and changing the business. Yeah, indeed there was. In fact, one of the areas that I, I study in M&A is the adoption of these new provisions. And one of the things that we tracked was pandemic provisions. And they picked up very, very quickly at the beginning of, of 2020. So here we're talking about 2022. They're sort of old hat, very accepted language of COVID provisions. And that was in here as well. So there were a lot of these exclusions or carve outs that he wasn't gonna be able to point to. And I think he knew it. Um, and so, and so, you know, the, when you're kind of looking over one of these provisions, you're trying to figure out, okay, is there something that's caused the company's prospects to be much worse? It's not caused by the general, you know, declining of the, of the industry. It's not caused by war, plague, pestilence, COVID. That's not caused by the personality of Elon Musk. The, the list starts to get narrowed. But one of the things that, you know, Mr. Musk sort of got onto, is that he, he sort of reached back to certain of the representations that had been made in the transaction, in the deal, further up in the document. And these were general representations. But one of the representations that Twitter had made is that their previous securities filings with the SEC had been, you know, um, had been, you know, accurate in, in all material respects and, uh, and did not have inaccuracies that would rise to the level of being one of these MAEs. And so, when he started chasing after the bots issue, that was the door that he was trying to execute. So he was looking at the reps and warranties and particularly the reps that brought in prior SEC filings uh, and essentially swore by them. Yeah. And so, so, so these reps and warranties, they're often made at the very front end of a contract, of a merger contract. And, um, and a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them actually reappear at the very end uh, in, in what's known as a bring down condition that says, look, those representations and warranties have to be true at the time of closing. And if they're not, this person can walk away. And so the, the thread that he basically tried to, or the needle he tried to thread was to say, there was a representation and warranty about the, 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 the preceding um, 10K that, that Twitter had filed in December, 2021 about its overall material accuracy. Um, and uh, and then that was one of the representations that was brought down to closing. So he could, so he, if he could point that it was inaccurate and that inaccuracy was a material adverse effect, then uh, he could walk away from the transaction. This has occupied most of the attention in the litigation thus far, and certainly in the public debate about it, about whether the bots, the number of bots at Twitter um, were just extravagantly different than the disclosures that Twitter had made. And, and, and that's essentially the route that he was following to try to, to walk away from the deal. It wasn't a crazy strategy. I mean, like, you know, buyers will sort of say, Hey, if you've got a rep on the accuracy of your, of your financial statements and your disclosures and your 10K, it's fair for us to go back and scour it and see whether you were caught in a, in an audacious and bold lie. But the problem really, and it's always been a problem kind of from day one is that if you go back to that disclosure, the disclosure isn't about bots as a fraction of all of the users on Twitter. 
It's a disclosure about only a subset of the users, the users that Twitter thinks has a profile that makes them look like they may be monetizable, like they'll click on ads and things like that. And then of that group, which is a small subset, they then did some kind of manual auditing of, of samples to see, you know, what, what, you know, if, if we really drill into what these, what these users are, do they appear to be bots or not? And so, so in their disclosure, they, they, they make this description saying, look, we're not claiming anything about overall users, just these monetizable daily average users. And then, you know, we set up kind of a, a finger in the wind approach to try to figure out, you know, what, what, what the, the, a representative count would be. We sampled from them. It involves some human judgment. It may not be the best sampling technique. We might be totally wrong about it. Just be advised, everyone who is reading this, this annual report. We tried, but we might have failed. And so wow. it was clearly lawyered, that statement in the 10K. And whoever that lawyer was, I hope they were one of my former students because they they really did give Twitter a fair amount of bargaining leverage to say, hey, look at this thing. This th th there's, there's very little that's concrete. This is the disclosure that you're saying was materially uh, false? I mean, look at it. There's, there's not much there there. Yeah, so I think most people who are looking at at that particular argument, um, where it was it was a little befuddling, quite frankly, because it didn't look like a very good argument, yet it was getting pretty much all the airtime, and and no one could figure out exactly what was going on with that. You know, my sense is um, this probably was a an infatuation of Mr. Musk. In part, it was an, an infatuation of his all along, which is another problem for his case, right? If, if he's, if he's saying, Hey, I should be allowed to walk away because I was adversely surprised by how many bots there are and what a big problem that Twitter has with bots. You would not figure that if you went back into February and March to try to figure out why he wanted to take over Twitter, that he would also be saying, "Oh, there's a huge bot problem, and I'm gonna I'm gonna solve the bot problem." It, it's he he more than almost anyone else probably is not going to be surprised by discovering bots. And here, the discovery was really a discovery about this kind of heavily lawyered, mealy mouth disclosure. I wonder if there is an argument that look, uh, why not actually put it in as a rep or make the company stand behind some some number, some threshold on bots, if that really is such a concern. Yeah. Now, we don't know exactly what was going into the negotiations. There are a lot of depositions, probably some of them involved the lawyers that were negotiating the deal. Um, but there might have been some evidence that came out in this trial, if the trial ever occurs, of uh, Mr. Musk's lawyer saying, hey, we, we want you to make a rep on bots. And Twitter's lawyer saying, oh, no, we're not going to do that. You want to, you know, basically take this, you know, take it or leave it offer and buy the company. We're not going to festoon it with a bunch of rep, a bunch of reps that can later be pointed to as reasons to walk away. So we don't know for sure, but you know, certainly that is not um, that would not be a surprising conversation to for two M and A attorneys to have in trying to negotiate the terms of this deal. And it certainly didn't appear there. So he had to, he had to pursue it through this roundabout effort of you know a, a general representation about securities disclosures, and then he was stuck picking on the actual defini definition and, and, and disclosure that, you know, was just this heavily lawyered thing. A quick sponsor break. This podcast is brought to you by Talks on Law, a company that I'm very familiar with and think that you should be as well. Law is dense. Sometimes it can even seem that it's written in a way to be intentionally obscure. Talks on Law is a website that's working to help improve our understanding of the law, and it's free to watch. Talks on Law brings in the world's top legal experts, people like Professor Tally, and gets them to explain or answer legal questions in video format or in writing so that we can better understand the laws that govern our lives. Talks on Law is also for lawyers. You know if you're a lawyer, that you need continuing legal education, but you may not know about Talks on Law's CLE. It's entertaining educational interviews with the titans of law. Visit TalksOnLaw.com to learn more. He's using the bots as one at least 
predominantly in the in the public eye, but what else was the argument, I suppose, from from Musk and his team? Yeah, so there were two other arguments to avoid liability. And then if he can't avoid, avoid liability, then there might be some other arguments on damages we can talk about later or on remedy. So one was the the I didn't breach, you breached first, right? The the sort of like I'm not, you know, you know, you're not quitting, you're fired type of type of argument. So so there Twitter was under some obligations and um under this merger agreement and if they breached their obligations and did so in a way that was a serious and material breach of their obligations, it would then relieve Mr. Musk of any duty to close himself. So one of the arguments that he had made is that they had breached some of their promises on how they were going to act. And he pointed to a couple of different things. One is they suddenly got alligator arms when it came to giving me access to the data that they had to give me access to on, uh, under this agreement. That was one. And the second, is that um, they started to, they were making a bunch of decisions that under the agreement I was supposed to be consulted on and I wasn't consulted on and therefore that breached their their covenant to um, to yes to operate the business under its you know in the ordinary course and also get my input and so some of their decisions including you know this Peter Zatko fellow who gets paid a significant sell settlement. Yeah, this was some type of uh, of IT uh, executive who was who was paid a, a large settlement. Yeah, this was a IT um, sort of a, a cyber security specialist that they had brought in not that long before, probably within the year. And there clearly were some issues both involving the the way that he got along with Twitter's CEO, who was relatively new at the at, at the end of 2021 as well, as well as some of the other IT professionals in the office. Um, he had crafted a, a view, which is probably not surprising for a cybersecurity specialist, that this company has huge cybersecurity problems, right? I, in fact, I I've met now several cybersecurity specialists and none of them have ever made other any other type of claims. And Mr. Zatko um, you know, made those claims as well. And we still don't know exactly what went down, but but you know, he he, you know, evidently um was shown the door um and uh had threatened to file a lawsuit. Um it was a it was just before the deal got um negotiated and and signed that he was shown the door and they settled the lawsuit during the summer. Um, but it was kind of after Mr. Musk was getting cold feet. And I think they paid him a little under $8 million uh, to uh, to settle his claims. And um, and so, you know, there, I guess there's a question about whether Twitter had to consult Mr. Musk to do that and didn't, or whether that was an extraordinary and not ordinary course decision that they made. And therefore, they couldn't do it um, without explicitly uh, contacting him. And th that's still an issue, right? There, I think he hasn't let go of this issue of, you know, Twitter breached this contract first. Um, but those are the sort of the two things, right? You know, the, the way they're running the company in his consultation and whether they were sharing enough information for him, at least to suit his needs. It's again, a kind of one of these things that if you look into the Peter Zatka report and you sort of ask, well, what are the things that he's complaining of? Only some of them touch on things that are in the merger agreement that Mr. Musk could point to. All right. Um, some of them just point to, oh, yeah, I just think the management of this company is bad. Well, that's really on some level a reason for someone else to buy the company, not not to run away from the company. Um, and that there wasn't anything like that in the merger agreement. Um, he uh, he he did talk about bots. But his his disclosure in the report that he wrote about bots actually kind of hurt Mr. Musk's case because he said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of bots on, on Twitter. It's filled with bots. Now, they do have this thing, this monetizable users measure, and that hardly has any bots on it. But there are bots all over the place elsewhere. And in and, you know, if you try to line that up with ten, with the with the Twitter's federal filing, the only thing that they made disclosures about were those monetizable um, monetizable accounts. And so it's almost like that report helped Twitter in that regard and not Mr. Musk. There were a couple of other things that, you know, might have had some effect and might still, um, you know, one of the representations and warranties in the in the deal was that Twitter owns its intellectual property associated with this platform. And uh, Mr. Zatko um, claims that a bunch of what they have is either 
freeware or commandeered from someone else's IP rights. That hasn't been fully vetted in the public eye. It may never be, but that you know that, that was one thing that you know, probably some extra ammunition that Zatko uh, brought into the brought into the picture. Um, but you know, on some level, Zatko's existence and his settlement might be the the biggest issue. You know, as to whether Twitter um, actually had the authority to do that without consulting Musk. Or they, you know, this was a standard, you know, sort of settlement with a former employee that they were entering into. That was one other avenue. Was is there another that that the the Musk team was was looking at to buttress his claims? Yeah, there was one other that could have helped them avoid liability, and it has nothing to do with what the contract says. It has to do with an allegation that he was tricked into getting into the contract to begin with. All right. So this is an allegation of fraud, right? That, that Twitter made various um, statements to him, representations that may or may not be in the final, in the final document, but he never would even enter into that final document had they made the truthful representations to him. Some kind of fraudulent inducement. It's called fraudulent inducement. And it's a, it is, you know, hundreds of years old, this sort of a claim that if I can demonstrate that the other side to a contract lied to me in a deliberate, intentional way about something that is, that is material in the contract, I might be able to walk away from it. Um, that the, the, the two big hangups in that kind of, a, that kind of approach, the two big obstacles that you're going to, you have to deal with is the first is intent, right? With the, with the material adverse effect, it could be accidentally omitted, but if it's materially adverse, you can walk away. Here you actually have to show a deliberate, um, attempt to hide information from Mr. Musk. Um, and it's hard hard to know whether that's that's there or not, but it, it it's something it's an added thing that a plaintiff has to show, and if they can't show it, they're 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 basically going to lose. And the second is that um, while you can use fraud doctrine to say that I was tricked into getting into a contract, if the contract that you have basically says I have been given to my full satisfaction all the information that I need. And I'm, so this is sometimes known as a big boy clause. And I therefore am not relying on any pre-contractual representations that have been made to me other than my own diligence on this deal. And I'm a big boy and I can take care of myself. Then, um, then, you know, I don't really get to, to go down this fraud route. And, Mr. Musk had signed one of these big boy clauses. Uh, you know, when you think about it, you know, it's not always airtight when you sign one of these clauses because the argument for fraud is you were tricked into the contract, which may mean you were tricked into sign- signing the big boy clause as well. But it wasn't a good look. Let's put it that way, right? That if you had signed one of these um, non-reliance um, terms, which he did as part of the deal, it's going to also narrow his ability to make a fraud claim. So when you add all these things up, the MAE, the Twitter breached first, or I was defrauded into getting into this contract. Each of them is a potential, you know, you could shoot for this, this, you know, escape window, but the escape windows just seemed really small, right? If you're, if you're a fantastic shot and wind conditions are right, you might be able to make it through. Why don't we quickly turn to, to Twitter and look at some of the, the, the tools that they had to I guess, force the merger through. And, you know, maybe before that, are there examples, classic examples of a merger being forced upon a buyer? There are, and there are several. Probably the most salient one is one that didn't happen very long ago. And it was uh, it was uh, in Chancellor McCormick's chambers, who's the judge who's actually hearing this case. Much smaller deal. Um, it involved a, uh, a cake decorating company and the, and it was a private equity transaction that was in the hundreds of millions of dollars. It wasn't a $44 billion transaction. Buyer got cold feet, however, um, tried to, you know, point to a whole bunch of excuses to walk away. And the chancellor said, you know what? None of those work for me. I'm going to order this transaction to close. Now, that wasn't the first time it happened, but other than the lower stakes involved, that case, it's called the DecoPack case, 
has a lot of similarities to this, not only on the facts itself, but on the judge. It was her opinion and it never got overturned. But you can go all the way back over 20 years now. Uh, probably one of the, the, the more famous cases is a case called IBP versus Tyson, which is a 2001 case, I think, um, in which a specific performance order was issued there as well. And, and courts in Delaware, the Delaware Court of Chancery, it's an equitable court. It has an ability to either say, okay, we're going to have money damages or we're going to force this contract through. And while the court itself has its own independent discretion to do it, it's also willing to, to look at the contract and say, hey, have the parties themselves provided for what the remedy was going to be. And that is probably Twitter's strongest weapon in this case. Why so? Because there is a provision in this agreement. It's at the very end of the agreement. I think it may be the last provision in this agreement that is titled specific performance. And what that means in legalese is the ability to force the other person to go through with the deal as opposed to just allowing them to pay damages and walk away from the deal. And so when Twitter filed suit against Mr. Musk, their lawsuit basically was all about specific performance. That's what they wanted from the transaction. In an early hearing, uh, Chancellor McCormick said, gosh, you know, you're obviously going to have to prove, you know, the, the breach case, but this looks like it's a case where specific performance would probably be available. You know, I'm not making any rulings about that, but it sure looks like it'd be one of these cases where specific performance is available. And this section lays out pretty clearly that except for a few circumstances that may well come into focus over the next couple of weeks, we'll see. Um, Twitter has the ability to ask for specific performance from the judge. And the judges in Delaware, they've kind of made their stock and trade listening to what's in the contract and trying to, you know, trying to make good on what's in the contract. So I, I you know, that, that provision itself, it's a little bit confused because it really gives Twitter the choice between going for specific performance and money damages. The money damages provision is in a different part of the contract. And there, if Twitter went for money damages, they're actually going to be limited. The terms of the contract look like they probably limit Twitter to $1 billion in capped damages if they went for money. There are a couple arguments they might be able to use to get out of that. But if they went down the money damages route, that would be a pretty big obstacle to them. On the other hand, if they went down specific performance, a specific performance order is, hey, dude, you got to pay $54.20 and you and you own the company and we're done. And that also would put the company in a better bargaining position, even if they were willing to take damages. It's sort of a, you better make a number that that makes us willing to to totally rethink the specific performance. Yeah, that's exactly right. Anytime I teach my contract students um, about remedies, and I spend a lot of time on remedies, I say, look, if your case is a case that potentially has a specific performance right, you should go for that. Even if you don't think at the end of the day that's what's going to be enforced, bargaining from the from the you know the strength of having that specific performance decree is really gonna is really gonna amp up your bargaining power and uh, is gonna allow you to pretty much visit maximal pain on the other side if they want to buy their way out of a specific performance order and kind of a post trial settlement and that could happen right if, if Twitter gets a specific performance decree you know Trump or uh, um, <laughs> Twitter and Mr Musk might sit down gosh uh, we'll get there a in good a Freudian slip uh, there because yeah. of of the of the power that both have wielded on Twitter with their accounts. Well, it's a it's an interesting thing because um, the specific performance provision there's a there's a couple of ways that you could chip at it. All right, one way that you could chip at it is this idea of a having specific performance decree as a way to enforce a contract. That is actually kind of the rarity in U.S. contract law. It's it's an exception. Usually the idea is money damages. And these courts of chancery and the Delaware's you know, court is pretty much the most famous one. They still reserve some authority to decide whether they want to use a specific performance decree or not. It's what's known as an equitable decision, which means they can bring in a whole bunch of potential policy reasons as well why they're not going to order it. And so one could potentially see, uh, you know, Chancellor McCormick say, well, I 
would usually order specific performance. But here, as we go forward, you know, Donald Trump was a hugely disruptive force in Twitter. Elon Musk says he's going to bring Trump back onto the platform. Maybe society and employees of Twitter are made better off by um, Elon Musk not owning the company. I'm going to go down the money damages route. I think that's unlikely. Fascinating. One more area that I suppose could could get in the way of uh, a completed transaction would be financing or uh, if the lenders fell through. Maybe you can explain, uh, is that is that a concern here? Is that something that's relevant? It is a concern. Uh, financing um, is often a, an explicit condition to closing a deal in the private equity space. And so a lot of uh, a lot of these take private transactions will have a specific um, condition at the end that says if financing fails, the buyer gets to walk away. This one doesn't. Oh wow! It does enter into remedy, however. So if you go back to the to the specific performance paragraph, one of the potential limitations on it that I noted earlier elliptically was that. Um, that specific performance remains kind of contractually an option for Twitter unless financing has failed. That's one of the key conditions that can force them off of specific performance and onto money damages, which remember are probably capped at a billion dollars. You, you end up in this situation where Musk, having recruited a bunch of these lenders and investment bankers, possibly bullied them onto this deal in a sight unseen way, is now, um, you know, kind of hoping against hope that they'll pull the plug on the deal. Now, here's the problem is that there are some cases that have had a similar structure. And in fact, that cake decorating case also had this structure to it. And the buyer in that, in that um, situation actually kind of, kind of hustled his lenders to pull the plug. He, he basically sort of, um, you know, exhorted them to abandon the deal. They abandoned the deal. And then he came in front of the court and said, oh, gosh, I'd love to follow through, but my lenders have evaporated. And it appears that, you know, having having no finance anymore, uh, the, the plaintiff's going to be stuck with money damages. And Chancellor McCormick, in that case, said, I'm not buying it. If the reason that your lenders disappeared is because of actions that you took as the buyer, and you could have prevented them disappearing, then um, I'm going to basically treat it as though they haven't disappeared. And I'm going to order the closing of this deal. And it really sucks to be you, dude, that your lenders have disappeared because you're going to have to go out and find more lenders. And so financing disappearing, it's always been this odd and precarious dance because if Elon Musk's fingerprints or even his DNA are on a decision to pull financing, I think the same prevention doctrine argument holds sway. And so the lenders are going to have to argue that they get to walk away for totally independent reasons. Now, that in turn is going to be um, subject to a different contract, to the contract between the lenders and Mr. Musk. What are the conditions under which they can walk away? And it's pretty good practice, and they did it in this case as well, is that they basically specifically tied the lender's ability to walk away from the deal to Mr. Musk's ability to walk away from the deal in, in the main contract. So only if Mr. Musk has a valid case to walk away himself would the lenders have a valid case to walk away from financing and vice versa. One other thing that that came out in the in the litigation were some of his text messages. How was that brought in, and why was it public? Well, so part of the um, the issue uh, that involves um, you know how this case is going to go forward is really going to be you know to what extent does um, does a, a sudden financing failure reflect you know. The, the fact that the financiers, they've always been grumpy about this deal and, and now they want to, they, they, they want to take off from the transaction. Um, and, you know, a lot of those backs and forth between both the lenders and, and the equity investors sort of suggest that people were chirpily deciding just to throw in with Elon Musk. And this didn't seem to be the biggest consideration for them at the time. I think also, you know, given that uh, so much of his claims about uh, the bots being this sudden, you know, um, surprise really made it, you know, made it important for 
Twitter to be able to say, okay, well, what do we know about what you were telling other people at the time that you were trying to recruit them onto your investment team, either as equity holders or lenders? Did, were you, you know, basically saying, yeah, don't worry, there's no bots problem? Or were you actually saying, yeah, there's a huge bots problem, but I alone can fix it? I'm going to solve it. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And you mentioned earlier something about bullying the investors. I I was reading some of the, the tweets where it seemed like, hey, buddy, you want to chip in on this? Uh, sure. What do you think's the right number? I don't know, a billion? Yeah. End of conversation. I just like, I, I, I want friends like that, first of all, who would just be willing to <laughs> to front me a billion on a on a text message. Um, and so, uh, it, you know, it, it looks like, you know, these are some of the like the serious big players in either, um, uh, you know, Silicon Valley or or, you know, sort of crypto finance, sort of the Larry Ellison, Sam Bankman Freed type type people who were uh, kicking in a bunch of a bunch of money. Uh, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that, you know, that was kind of the the it was the, it was the boys club financing model that he was going with particularly for the uh for the um equity financing so you know it seemed like he wanted like kind of high profile names he was getting a lot of high profile names they were not asking a lot of questions indeed the agreement seems to be two or three lines of a of a set of text messages and that was the commitment what you were talking about was more related to the financing the debt financing that um that would be more relevant yeah, I think that would be a little bit more relevant. And, and you know, the fact of the matter is the debt financiers, um, suppose they came in and they had uh, um, done a big projection, uh, a, uh, a net revenues projection or a valuation projection, man, Twitter would want to see it. Like, how are you using, you know, what, what reasoning are you using to justify uh, going forward with this deal? And so, uh, so since so many of Mr. Musk's own uh, defenses seemed to hinge on him being unfairly surprised. It became fair game to say, well, we got to we gotta see what you were and weren't surprised about. We need evidence about conversations that weren't privileged conversations that you were having while you were getting into this transaction. I don't think we'll ever know for sure why, uh, why uh, Elon backed away from uh, his attempt to escape the deal, why he came back to the original offer. But your best guess, it's a combination of sort of a, a difficult a legal claim in the first place, some financial risk, and maybe embarrassment or exposure of him, bad PR that just wouldn't make it worthwhile? Well, yeah, I think that last one, you can, it, you know, it, and sometimes it's easy to belittle that. But if you think about it, you know, here's a guy who is able to pull in billions of dollars with sort of, you know, hey, bro, text type messages. Um, there aren't too many of us of us who could do that. I'm going to just say here to your great surprise that I'm not one of them. <laughs> and um, and so, you know, basically these folks that are willing to, you know, to write a, um, you know, a nine digit check to you, a 10 digit check to you, they're doing it because they kind of they kind of trust in the, you know, in the bond of your friendship with them. And if that gets sort of dragged in front of a public proceeding, that can certainly do some damage to that reputational capital. So it may also have been the case that, you know, Mr. Musk was not only not that excited about himself being personally embarrassed, but, you know, possibly that he didn't want to embarrass to defend, his friends. Yeah. Imagine you're defending yourself. Oh, no, no, that wasn't me. That was crazy Larry Ellison who said that, you know, and he's nuts. Everyone knows he's nuts. Well, that then becomes something that's on the video, right? And I'm not saying that, that you know, that Ellison is not spent, you know, that you can get into a deposition where you're, you know, kind of backed against the corner and you start thinking about ways out and maybe that involves throwing some of your friends under the bus and then it's a videotape deposition and that comes out later on. And so so I think that there was, you know, there was all, always going to be a little bit of unpleasantness around that. And that might be another reason to say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to go through this deposition. I'm willing to pay money. And in fact, I'm willing to just close the deal on its original terms, which he eventually announced that he was going to do um, subject to some conditions. And Professor, you know, one last question. We've been talking about the Delaware Court of Chancellery, Delaware law. Is there anything that we should be thinking of that's not Delaware that's uh, of legal concern in this matter? I think that the odds are pretty low that anything outside of Delaware are going to come and upend what's happening in Delaware. There are maybe a couple of kind of serious wild cards, so I don't want to overplay 
their importance. One is, um, you know, to the extent that Mr. Musk was complaining about disclosures made in federal securities filings, he's a shareholder of Twitter. He, in principle, could say there's been federal securities fraud going on here, and I want to sue to enjoin any transaction, any vote that was procured as a matter of federal securities fraud law. He hasn't tried to do it. He couldn't do it in a Delaware state court, but might try to do that in a Delaware federal court. I think the time for that has largely passed. I don't think a Delaware federal court's going to try to butt in on 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 uh, Chancellor McCormick's um, processes. The second one, which is I think also kind of an equal wild card, is um, but it, it's conceivable uh, is that um, the U.S. government has a role to play at, to approve or in some cases uh, veto and in some cases reverse mergers that the government views to be adverse to the national security interests of the United States. Um, and uh, during the first couple of weeks of October, you know, Mr. Musk tweeted out some messages that seemed almost like like he was reading a script that was provided for him by Vladimir Putin about how to how to end the Ukrainian crisis. Um, that seems to be, you know, a lot of the talking points of, of the Russians. There was you know, some I, call I to compromise this... and giving, uh, letting Russia keep what was formerly sovereign Ukrainian land. Right. And and kind of a little over the top saying this has been Russia since 1750 and and so forth. And so so, uh, you know, there's, you know, there, at least the, the the most conspiratorial of theories um, might say, hey, Maybe he's doing this to try to goad federal authorities into getting so nervous about this transaction that he's going to be sort of a hand puppet to Vladimir Putin after this deal closes. <laughs> wow. Trump, Trump comes back on. Putin is now given access to all the user information of what's going on on, on Twitter that, um, there are serious national security issues here. Now, the, you know, during the Trump administration, um, a Chinese purchase of the, the dating, the gay dating app grinder got reversed under the theory of, you know, of national security interests. Usually these kind of cases deal with, you know, companies that like make drones or, or, or aircraft, not social media companies, but its application was expanded a bit. And so it's something called CFIUS. Uh, it's, it's the Council for Foreign Investment in the United States, and it's all at the administration level. And so um, it's essentially under the president. And if the president makes a determination that there's a national security issue here and I want to put the kibosh on a deal, it's not even reviewable in a court. Um, the substantive decision is the president's and the president's alone. And so, you know, I, I guess there's kind of this weird outside um, um, possibility. I think it's pretty remote that there's some backroom brokered political deal where Mr. Musk, you know, says, OK, look, if you will foreclose my buying Twitter because you think I'm, you know, a Russian agent or something, I will um, I'll back off of uh, trying to pull away Starlink access to the Ukrainian troops um, and um, I'll play nice with all my SpaceX assets and so forth. Um, the fact of the matter is the government doesn't have to put the stop to this deal now. They can wait till it closes. They can wait till all the shareholders of Twitter are paid off and then march in and say, yeah, Mr. Musk, we don't want you owning this company. You have to now sell it um, back out to the, whoever the highest bidder is. And then he's going to have to sell it under then prevailing market conditions. So the fact that the, the government doesn't even have to move now, they can move later, gives them a lot of bargaining power. So I don't think it's going to happen. And probably undercuts that strategy because yeah. then he's, yeah. he's shooting himself in the foot again. It's a it's another high risk strategy, much much like you know chasing the debt away. But you know if you're if you're in the you know kind of if you've gone down deep into the rabbit hole of trying to handicap all the different possible you know warrens inside the the, the rabbit hole, this is a, a fairly obscure warren that's way back in the back recesses of it. Professor Tally teaches at Columbia Law School. Eric, this has been so much fun. Uh, I really appreciate the time. It was great. It was great to be here. The Edge of the Law podcast is brought to you by Talks on Law, a destination for legal education. Enjoy legal explainers by attorney experts, continuing legal education, and interviews with the titans of law. Visit TalksOnLaw.com to learn more.